Father, we thank you for uh, just the good work you're doing in our lives here. We thank you for that sweet work you're doing in the, in the lives of this congregation, the people that make it up and this body as a whole. And Lord, our desire is to, is to know you in a deeper way. Lord, uh, you've saved so many of us, Lord, from the penalty of our sin, from the power of our sin, you set us free. You've drawn us into a relationship with yourself that we might walk in fellowship with a holy God. And Lord, you teach us through your word, Lord, how to walk. And so that's our desire. And so Lord, we freely admit that uh, in our own devices, we will go astray. We freely admit that if we just use our own wisdom, so often we'll make mistakes. And so we want the wisdom of your holy word to speak into our hearts in, in very practical ways as well. Uh, with, in regard to things that we should be doing and how we should be living and decisions we should be making. And so, Lord, bless your word one more time. You faithfully do. We ask you to do it once more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, we are, as I said, we're in chapter 5. Remember the book of 1 Timothy, is a, it's a pastoral epistle. It's, it's designed to help Timothy serve as a pastor of a body of believers. Remember, he was a younger fella, uh, you know, 30, 35 years old or whatever, and he was going and being sent, and some of the people that he was going to be working with might be twice his age and the challenges of that and all that kind of stuff. And so Paul sends him this very simple letter here explaining things that he should be doing and how he should go about doing it. As we came to chapter 5, this fellow, look at this guy. Thank you so much. No ice? No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, Yes, I understand. Uh, so just very practical directions for him, particularly in chapter 5 where he shifted gears a little bit. Remember a lot of it, you know, you've got these issues that are going on with false teachings and these are the people you need to put into leadership and, and these are the type of qualifications they need. Then he had chapter 5 and he went a real practical direction. Look, Timothy, when you're working with older people, you need to show respect. Yes, you're the guy in charge, but you need to show respect to them as you are working with them. And, and Timothy, when you're working with younger people, particularly when you're working with the ladies, remember to really be on your guard against being drawn in, you know, to this heart relationship, they with you and you with them. Very practical stuff. And then he shifted there, still very practical, to talking about how to minister to the widows of the congregation. And that started around verse 3. It continues all the way to around verse 16. And what we know is, yes, there were some, that were there in Ephesus, it seems, that's why Paul's bringing it up, that were trying to shirk that responsibility, let the church take care of it, and I can kind of just go live my life, the, the grandchildren, the children, the grandchildren. But for the most part, the first century church had this down. They were caring for the widows, and really, as you read kind of between the lines of Paul's writing, it's almost like he's stepping in and he's saying, look, there are people you should be caring for, and then there's people that you shouldn't be caring for. They were so good at it, he had to tell them, she's probably not someone you need to be caring for. She's got kids. She's got grandkids. They need to learn how to care for them. And this one over here, with all of her extra free time, she's getting involved in some things, some sinful things. You're freeing her up to do that. Don't. Let her have to go to work every day, be tired, so she doesn't go out at night. You, you see where I'm going? And so very practical stuff to this group of people that, for the most part, were doing what they needed to be doing. And so, again, I've reminded you already that Paul said, if a woman had family, then the family 
should learn to care for their mother in that particular way, their grandmother. He says, secondly, that the woman really needed to be a person who had set her hope on God. She was walking with God. She was walking in godliness. Because you certainly don't want to finance a sinful lifestyle for her. And I referenced that a moment earlier. Now, as Paul, in verse 9, I think Paul shifts his attention. Still talking about widows, but shifts his attention. Now, the I'll call it, if you will, the classical understanding of verses 9 through 16 is that Paul is continuing to give qualifications for who should financially be supported and who shouldn't be financially supported. And it, that it certainly applies. It's not one you're like, that's crazy. All right, there's certainly an application that can be made that F Paul is furthering along, kind of discussing this idea of who should and who shouldn't be financially supported. But I'm going to suggest to you today, and there's other, I'm not just making some stuff up for the first time ever, there's other commentary, commentators that think this as well, that Paul is talking about a new list here. So he's not talking about a list of who should be supported, but rather he's talking about a new list of people, widows, and who should be on that particular list. So are you with me so far? Hopefully it'll become a little clearer as we start digging in here. So let's, I'm going to read from verse 9 down to verse 16. That'll be our text for today. He says, Let a widow be enrolled on a list if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. Example, if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality, if she has washed the feet of the saints, if she has cared for the afflicted and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll on that list younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. And so I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give their adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. And let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Now again, I mentioned it. There's some discussion among Bible teachers, Bible believers, good people, uh, as to what this role is that Paul has in mind when he says, let a woman or a widow, he says, let a widow be enrolled. And again, at first glance, I think we just keep reading on from verse 8, and we think that Paul is talking about this is a list of widows that should be regularly and financially supported by the church. That is, of course, that they're truly widows, and he's already defined that a little bit in those opening verses. The second way of looking at this, or a different way of looking at this, I think makes a little more sense, is to understand that this is a brand new list altogether. And that is that it's not a list of the women that should receive aid, but rather that it's a list of those women, women that should serve in a role of distributing that aid. That's a very different list, isn't it? That Paul is getting at. And the idea, it certainly, in my opinion, it lends itself 
to sort of the stringent qualifications that Paul puts in place in verses 9 uh, and specifically through verse 15. And, and we'll go over it, but as you read verses 9, 10, 11, it's very reminiscent of the qualifications that he said earlier about the elder and the qualifications he said earlier about the deacons, two ministry roles in a congregation. And so I think what Paul is getting at here in this portion of chapter 5 is a ministry role that older widows can play in a church or in a congregation. And so while certainly the information can be applied, uh, just as it was in verses 3 through 8 about who, could, who should receive aid from the church, I think a better understanding is that Paul has moved on and moved on from discussing and forming a list of those who need need or uh, need assistance to a list of those ladies that should be disseminating that assistance. And so with that as kind of the arg my argument at least, and you be a Berean, you search the scriptures, uh, certainly so, uh, let's dig in with that being the idea. Paul says, let a woman be enrolled if. Now he's going to give six ifs here. If, and I'll read it quickly and then we'll go back and talk about it. Verse 9 if she is not less than 60 years of age, also verse 9, if she has been the wife of one husband, verse 10, if she has a reputation for good works, also verse 10, if she has brought up children, verse 10, if she has shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, and cared for the afflicted, and then finally, closing out the verse, if she has devoted herself uh, to every good work. Now, all of those are the antithesis of the self-indulgent woman back in verse 6. Remember her? That Paul said the self-indulgent woman doesn't need to be receiving regular financial support from the congregation. And all of these certainly are the opposite of that. And so in that sense, it applies to kind of the, the, the typical interpretation here. But notice with me these ifs. And again, how similar they are to those two lists in chapter 3 that Paul gave for the elder and for the deacon, for the person serving in official capacity in a local church. There, Paul wrote that the overseer needed to be above reproach, sober-minded, hospitable, self-controlled, and respectable. A high standard, right? He wrote of the deacon that they needed to be dignified and not double-tongued. In both instances, he said that the church official needed to be the husband of one wife. And you may recall that I kind of defined that or explained that further as a, and I always get it backwards here, a one-woman man. Well, here, Paul talks about the need of the women on this list being a one-man woman, right? The, the wife of one husband. They, too, needed to be hospitable. They had to be humble servants. They had to be devoted to good works. It seems to me that Paul is putting a qualification for a service position within the congregation. I'll, I'll give a name to it. Paul doesn't, but I will. It's the Pastoral Care Widows Ministry Team. A widow ministry team that's going to go and they're going to care in a very pastoral way for people within the congregation, particularly the widows within the congregation. Those that might be on that other list receiving support and assistance. Paul's first requirement is she has to be at least 60 years of age. Now that, this isn't the only requirement, but it is one that Paul insists on 
for the person that will be serving in this position. And of course, we know that age doesn't automatically equate with wisdom. There's plenty of people in their 60s, 70s, 80s that, like, how did you make it this far? You know what I mean? That kind of thing. So it doesn't automatically equate with wisdom. It doesn't automatically equate with propriety and maturity and things like that. But there are some things, to be honest, that just need time in order to develop within a person. And so Paul picks this number here, 60 years, as an age that would allow a person to grow and to mature and to have experience to be able to minister in the role that he is describing. Now, he says 60 years of age. I suspect that that could be a sliding scale based on generations and how long people live. And, you know, a thousand years ago, they may have lived to this age, and now we live to that age and so on. So I suspect there could be a little leeway here uh, on this idea of 60 years of age. 60 years of age used to be you were done working and you were rounding out your life. Most of us here now, we're hoping, I hope I got a little more time. You know, when I'm in my 60s, I'm hoping 20 more years or 30 more years here. So I, want, I suspect that this could be a sliding scale here. But I think the point that Paul is making is that the woman has a wide experience of human life, that she's developed fair, like just good, solid judgment. There are things that freak you out when you're in your 20s but you've experienced them when you're in your 50s and 60s and 70s, and you can take a deep breath and go, okay, we'll get through this. We've gone through things like this before, and that's just something you need time with. And so here, as a godly older woman, Paul says, not less than 60 years, giving her time to develop all those character traits that I've mentioned. Paul goes on, he says, having been the wife of one husband. Again, this is that literal, more uh, literal understanding, a one-man woman. So not necessarily that, you know, this lady hasn't been married twice. You know, her first husband died. She got remarried. I'm sorry, you don't qualify. The idea is, as it was for the husbands when they were to be elders and deacons, the idea is one that is faithful to his wife, or in her case, faithful to her husband, devoted to her husband, uh, true to her husband. Here, Paul says three, number three, or the third thing, verse 10, having a reputation for good works. Now, a person isn't godly because they do good works. Some people think that. A person that is godly will do good works. Does that make sense? So you don't become godly because you've done a whole bunch of good works. And so this woman is not a godly woman because she's done these things. She's done these things because she is a godly woman. She, and she's done them so frequently that she's developed a reputation People ex uh, for good works. People expect that she would do these things because she always does these things. And that attests to the kind of woman that she is. Paul goes on in verse 10. He says, and if she has brought up children. Now, I, I think we would all readily agree. Paul's not just saying that she raised kids, got them in the house, got them out of the house and moved them on. And doesn't matter what kind of kids she raised. I'm, I'm sure Paul's talking about she's brought up children in the faith. God, she's attempted to pour into those kids so that they would grow up in a way where they might have the benefit of seeing God at home and walking with God for themselves. I think also here, what if this woman didn't have any kids? Some people don't have kids for a variety of different reasons. In some cases, it's a biological reason. 
that prevents her from being able to have a child, and so she's all of a sudden disqualified? Not necessarily, because whether she was bringing up her own children biologically, or in that culture and in that day and age, or uh, orphans, orphanages, like, I'm trying to say what I want to say. There were so many kids that were orphaned at a young age, as little babies or whatever it might be, that there was, it was just rampant in the Roman society for whatever reason. And so you got all of these kids that are around, and many of the, the boys would grow up and go into a military-type lifestyle. Many of the girls would grow up and go into a prostitute-type lifestyle. And so the church comes along and has a real opportunity to minister into the life of these people and to bring in these young kids. And I think Paul, that's part of what Paul is getting at, bringing in these children into our home and raising them in such a way to give them the benefit of knowing God and walking with God in their life here. And of course, he's talking about bringing them up in a Christian manner, knowing Christ. The next three, he goes on, he says in verse 10, and I think they all sort of go together. I think it's a further description of these good works that he's talked about earlier. He says that she has shown hospitality, she has washed the feet of the saints, and she has cared for the afflicted. And again, I think they all fit into this idea of uh, the reputation for good works. So to be enrolled in this list, this woman would need to be a person that opens her home and opens her heart to care for the needs of others. And to do so, even in the most uh, menial of tasks. Look at that one there. It talks about washing the feet of others. Well, you live in a dusty society. You're wearing sandals. People's feet are dirty. It is rather refreshing, isn't it? When I don't know about you, but if you don't have time for a full shower, you just sort of you soak your feet in the pool. And you're like, oh, I feel like a new man, or whatever it might be. It's refreshing, or whatever. And that's what they would do. They, they would wash the feet of visitors as they would come into their home. But it was one of those tasks nobody wanted to do. Would you want to do it? No. No, you wouldn't. Nobody would want to. And it was the, the task that was given to the lowest slave in the home. Or the kid, maybe. You can't do all these other chores, but, you know, go get a bowl. Wash the feet of Aunt Margaret, uh, who's just arrived. And so the lowest person in the home would do it. And yet here is this woman who has washed the feet of the saints, Probably literally, but I think Paul's point is simply, this is a woman who's willing to humble herself and to serve other people. That's the type of person you want in ministry. And so Paul gives those three examples there uh, of showing hospitality, washing the feet of the saints, and caring for the afflicted. This lady has a track record of humility in her service to others. This isn't a situation of, you know, I'm the mother of this congregation and everyone's going to respect me. It's not what it's about, putting her in some position so everyone will look to her and honor her. This is about being a humble servant. And this lady has demonstrated in her life when it was unofficial that she was a humble servant. And so she's a perfect fit when it will become official because we know she'll continue to be a humble servant. Here's one of the reasons, this little section is one of the reasons I think the case for this being a separate position of ministry as opposed to need is the case because if this lady was destitute, how's she going to be opening her home and feeding people and giving them a place to stay and all that kind of stuff? And so I think it's one of the arguments supporting what uh, my understanding of this text. Continuing, however, Paul, he goes back to this idea of the good works of this woman 
and he says that she has devoted herself to every good work. And he, go, he goes back to this idea of good work. I think putting a bow around this idea of her good works, he uses the word there, devoted herself. That's a word which means it describes a person that diligently and energetically gives themselves to something. And so she's not occasionally doing a nice thing here and a nice thing there. This is her life. This is what she has given herself to. She is devoted to diligently and energetically care for the needs of other people and to do so in a manner of humility. That's the type of person she is. She's perfect for the job. And so that's the type of person Paul says that he wants in this position, enroll into this position. The person that should not be enrolled in this position, not because she's a louse of a human being, but because Paul is anticipating potential problems. And Paul says in verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Now Paul already said that younger widows shouldn't be on that list to receive financial assistance. And so if that's our interpretation of this, it fits, because it fit there. However, I, again, I think we're talking about something else altogether. And so here, Paul is once more talking about younger widows not being on this list either. Not being on this list of officially recognized positions in the church that will be used to go and disseminate assistance to other people here. He instructs Timothy, refuse to enroll the younger widowed women in that role. And the reason that he gives, two really, the first one is in verse 11. For when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. There's three ideas in that verse that I'm thinking, wait a minute, what are we saying? That need a little bit of explanation, I think. All right, Maybe you saw that as well. The first is he talks about them desiring to marry. Now, is that a bad thing? Well, I don't think so. I think if a person is a widow or widower and they decide they want to get married again, is, is the Bible against that? No, the Bible is not against that. But in this passage, it thinks like, oh, man, she abandoned her faith just because she wanted to get married or whatever. And so the first thing we know is that there's no general prohibition in the Bible for a widow or a widower that prevents them from remarrying. All right, If the other person's in the faith and they want to remarry, they can. Look at verse 14, for instance, in this passage. There, Paul said, so I would have younger widows marry. And so obviously, if it was sinful for her to remarry, Paul wouldn't say, my preference is that she would remarry, right? Are you all with me? on that here. All right, so that's the first idea. There's no general prohibition against a person that is a widow or widower from remarrying. The second thing, verses 11 and 12, is that last word. Now, in the English Standard Version, the last word of verse 12 is the word faith. Some of you may be reading different versions. I understand. That's fine. Uh, does anyone have a different word? Everybody gets involved. You have the word pledge there. Both of those words are... Uh, interpretations of the original Greek. Sometimes it's translated faith, sometimes it's translated pledge. So both of those words fit there. 
And so some of our versions that we're reading translated pledge, some of our versions that we're reading translated faith. Both of those are acceptable, and really it becomes the context of the passage to determine what's the proper word that is being used. Translating it faith, as the English Standard Version does that I'm using, gives the impression that Paul is communicating that here's this woman, she's become passionate again to remarry, longing for that type of relationship in her life once more, and that she's actually abandoned her Christian faith just so she could get married again. All right, that It gives that impression here, that she's so desperate to marry that she lowers her standards, and she'll just take anybody. And she ends up marrying this unbeliever, going astray, and not even being a Christian anymore, or something to that effect. My opinion? A lot of assumptions need to be made to come to that particular conclusion. I don't think that's what Paul is getting at. If we translate this verse, verse 12, the last word, as the word pledge, New American Standard does, for instance, and other versions, I'm sure, or I know they do, then it fits in with this idea of an older woman, 60 year, over 60, that has pledged herself, I am going to the rest of my days devote myself to the church obviously to Christ, but to the church and serving the body of the congregation. That's in some official capacity. I think that's what Paul is getting at. All right, and hopefully uh, I'm making a, a case for that. And so evidently then on this list of ministering widows, to get on the list, it involved a pledge of sorts. I'm going to live out my days doing this. And as the younger widows here, as they healed or were in the process of healing, from the grief that was caused by the loss of her husband, the desire to once again marry enters in, and perhaps even proves too much for this young woman, so that this pledge that she was totally in on, she abandons, and she goes a different direction. I, can't, I can no longer serve the church, because I, I decide I'm going to get married, and I'm going to raise kids, and all that. Paul's point then would be that the younger widow who was initially all in for it, her fervor then for God, if you will, has cooled as it's been replaced by a greater fervor to develop and emerge, uh, for a relationship to develop and emerge and her to get married. And Paul then is saying, look, don't set her up, for this younger woman, for that sort of fall, if you will. Not necessarily a sinful thing, but a violation certainly of the pledge that she would have taken, which leads, if you will, to the last point in this verse or these verses Paul talks about incurring condemnation my goodness she wanted to get married now they're going to condemn her notice what it doesn't say it doesn't say incurring damnation so Paul's not talking about her abandoning her faith and she's going to go to hell because she you know she promised she was going to serve the church and then she abandoned her pledge and now she's you know, incurring damnation. Paul says condemnation. And condemnation doesn't always mean hell. It doesn't always mean eternal judgment. He's speaking here, I think, of the two things. One would be the sense of guilt and self-reproach that she herself feels. Because, man, I made this pledge and now I abandoned it, but I really feel like I got to go in this direction and get married and all of that. Guilt and self-reproach, or perhaps even what, I, man, that lady, once she promised she would, and now look at her and the self-reproach and the condemnation that comes from that avenue. But I think even more importantly, Paul's concern is what he, he begins to unpack in verse 13, 
And that's his concern for the spiritual well-being of these young widows. Look at that heart of our pastor here, Paul, or the pastor here. His concern is for her own spiritual well-being. Not, well, i got to get somebody to fill that role. But yeah, but it could be damaging to her walk with Christ. It doesn't matter. I need somebody to fill that role. That, Paul doesn't care about that. Paul cares about her spiritual well-being. And if she's spiritually solid and strong and everything is going to be fine, all right, let's move forward. Then she can do what, you know, whatever the task is calling for her to do. His concern primarily is her spiritual well-being. And so he says this, besides that, which can be interpreted, by the way, almost like even more importantly than that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house. And not only that, idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. I'll say this. Men, you could be just as much an idler and a gossip and a busybody. And so don't say, yeah, those women, that's their problem or whatever. That could be your problem too. All right, so learn. If you need to learn, learn from this passage. Make application to your life. But here, Paul knows that as an able-bodied, typical younger widow might be, Paul knows that once the necessity for work has been removed, because she's now going to be, she's on, we're going to be paying for her to kind of do this or providing for her to do this. Paul knows that once that necessity for work has been removed, that this younger woman would be exposed to the, to the danger of developing harmful habits and practices. That she, he says here, that they would be prone to become idlers it's more likely they'll become an idler, an idle person, than not be. He says going from house to house, wasting their own time and wasting other people's time. You need to go home. I got work to do. I got dishes to do. I got laundry to fold or whatever it might be. Wasting their time and wasting other people's time. He says also in verse 13, prone to become gossips and busybodies. Begin saying things that they should not be saying. I like Henry Ironside. He said it this way. He said, when people have nothing else to do, they generally set their tongues working overtime when they have too much time on their hands. And Paul here, he sees that. So his preference is, his recommendation is, not a command necessarily, but his preference or recommendation, he says, so I would have, that's the preference recommendation part, younger widows to marry bear children, raise those children, manage their households, so as to give the adversary no occasion for slander. And then he has, and some have already strayed after Satan. He says that that's what they can devote themselves to. Not a command again, but a general principle, a principle of wisdom here. And part of the reason is that the adversary, that word adversary, can be translated Satan. All right, so it, that may be what Paul is getting at. He talks about Satan in the next part of the verse there. But it could simply just be any old adversary that might say, you know, that church, they're crazy over there or whatever. That person has become an adversary, slandering this particular woman. He talks there in the verse about uh, no occasion for slander. That word occasion is in military terms. It means a base of operations. And so you secure that ground, and from that ground you attack. 
And Paul is recognizing here that this younger widow that was put into this position and now has this time in her hand and is able to, hands and able to go about and becomes an idler and becomes a busybody and becomes a gossip, that becomes a base of operation from which Satan can attack in the church. And soon there's division and soon there's hurt feelings and soon there's problems. And I heard her say, and I told her that in confidence. And now she went back and told the next house she went to and problems. And Paul sees that. Paul knows that. We use the word a lot, a foothold. It becomes a foothold from which the enemy can attack. It becomes an occasion or a base of operations. And so whether it was by divine revelation, where God said, Paul, make sure no younger widows are in that position, or if it was just very simply and naturally through, look, I have a lot of experience, Timothy. I've been doing this for 30 years. Let me just tell you. All right, whatever the, the way that it came about, Paul gives this point here about not enroll, enrolling the younger widows and instead allowing them, encouraging them, you know what, give yourselves to marriage. Give yourselves to raising a family, bearing children, managing a household. And that would be a better uh, direction for you to go. Now, some might object to that. They might say, but I want to do something for God. Paul's thinking, I hope our thinking, Raising a family is doing something for God. And pouring yourself in this portion of your life into that is doing something for God. You're their only mother. You're the only one that can pour into their life in that particular way. Don't neglect that responsibility. And dads, you too. Verse 16, Paul says, If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. And let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. That's, that's similar in statement. If she has grandchildren, grandchildren, let them care for them. Let them learn. Now, here's another instance where different versions interpret this verse or a key word in this verse differently. And so if you're reading a different version like the New King James, ESV says if any believing woman has relatives. The New King James, for instance, says if any believing man or woman has widows or relatives that are widows well are we talking about women or are we talking about men and women that's very different the word that is used there would be similar to like the way it's it's in the opposite but the way that we would sometimes use the word man mankind to describe men and women that's the word that is used there it can be used to talk about use guys or it could be used to talk about the ladies, or it could have been used to talk about the men uh, and how it is. So uh, whether we're talking about, like, all right, so you're, an, you're a widow, you have resources, you're a woman, you have resources, you can provide care. Or if you're a man or a woman and you have resources, you can provide care. Either work, I, I think, there. And so certainly, ladies, uh, if, if you find yourself in that, this is how you can care. You can continue. You don't, you're not helpless. You have what you need. God can still use you. God can still work with you, allow him to, uh, through you, allow him to do so. Notice again, though, that the family is God's fir first sphere of provision for the needs of its members. And when a person does not have those individuals in their life to fulfill their needs, or as I mentioned two weeks ago, we were in here two weeks ago, if it just becomes very, very obvious that her family members are schmoes and they won't step up and do what they need to do, then the church steps in. But if a person has a family member or individuals that can and are or need to be encouraged to and will, then they should be the ones 
providing provision and protection and care in such circumstances. That's the bare minimum, I think, as a follower of Christ, is to be caring for those that are around us. And so with that, we're going to have communion in a few moments here. We've talked a lot over the last three weeks about caring for widows. And again, I think it was we should because that's what the verses were and that's how long it took us. That being said, I do hope that we can all make a greater point of application beyond just simply caring for widows here, both as a, as a church, a point of application, but also for us as individuals, as families. As we're walking with Christ and we're trying to figure out, all right, God, how does God want me to serve him in the very daily and in the very practical? I hope we can make a greater point of application. Paul talked about widows and caring for them that were truly in need, those that were truly alone and truly in need. I think if you have people in your life that aren't necessarily widows but are truly alone and truly in need, God's going to be okay if you care for them. And if you step up and you, you help them. And that may not necessarily be financial. It may simply be providing that emotional need that they have for someone in their life. You can be that person in their life. It may simply be fulfilling that need of somebody caring for them, reaching out to them, because we haven't seen you in a little bit. You know, if they're in a married relationship, husband and wife are always checking in on one another, or the kids checking in on one another. But if they don't have that person in their life, how good it is that somebody else takes the responsibility to phone them from time to time, or to reach out to them, or to invite them into a circumstance that they may find themselves in. And so certainly we want to make application of the words of the Apostle Paul, but I think it's just as important that we make application to the heart of the Apostle Paul. Paul draws our attention to the destitute woman without a husband. I think we can apply this to the single woman and her children that maybe have been abandoned by a husband and a father. We can apply it there. I think we can apply it to the elderly widower, the elderly man who has no near relatives in his life. And perhaps he's past the age of being able to provide for himself financially and certainly emotionally and all the rest. I think we can apply it to the orphan that we come across that is truly a need. Even though Paul didn't mention orphans at all in this passage, I think we can apply it there. In our society, we, we don't have orphans as much in our society, but we have people that enter into the foster care system. How great would it be if we as Christians are kind of running that foster care system and kids are coming into our homes and we're caring for them and we're leading them and pointing them as much as we can during the time that we have them to Christ. That's a very just simple, practical way that God could lead us to be a part of the solution in the lives of people. And so I'd encourage you, let the Lord search your heart about that. My point is there's plenty of people in our community that have needs, physical needs, financial needs, emotional needs, psychological needs, and God can use us to fulfill those needs. And so that's my hope, that as a result of our time together these last three weeks, that we would have hearts that are more open for God to show us how we can meet the needs of those that are around us. Amen? Would you be praying about that in your own life and us as a church? I want to read two verses to close. The first is found in, in uh, the writings of the Apostle John. He says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. But by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. 
But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Let children, little children, let us not love in word and talk only, but in deed and in truth. And then one other verse from the book of James. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Let's pray together. So, Father, our prayer is certainly that we would catch your heart as uh, manifested here, as demonstrated here by the Apostle Paul. And we wouldn't necessarily just get stuck in sort of the very literal word for word what he's talking about, but Lord, we would develop your heart as to how you might want to lead us to really be, Lord, your hands and feet of mercy to your children in this congregation and even to those, Lord, outside of this congregation and even outside of the faith maybe. So give us wisdom. Lord, we know uh, making the decision of how to help and will the help be helpful is sometimes hard. So we pray for wisdom. But again, right now, Lord, I just pray for soft hearts for every one of us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.